0: You're listening to a Counterpoint podcast. This is a recording of a panel debate that took place on September 7th, 2010 at the launch of Culture and Class, a pamphlet written by John Holden and published by Counterpoint.
1: Welcome and thank you very, very much uh, for making it here tonight. I think I have to say, first of all, I'm incredibly impressed that so many of you turned up. I'm also, to some extent, you know, despite the hassle of the tube strike, I think it's fantastic that we're launching a pamphlet on class and culture Against the background of a tube strike and in the circus space. I think somehow uh, there's some serendipity um, in all this. Um, I'm Catherine Fiespia, I'm the director of Counterpoint, which is the think tank uh, of the British Council. And essentially, what we work on and what we research are the different ways uh, in which we can improve how we live together in an interdependent world, because that's in essence, what the British Council tries to foster. And what we look at at Counterpoint are those things that help us uh, live together uh, despite difference, through difference in an interdependent world. And then uh, also those things that maybe stand in the way of how to live together well. And, and we feel that um, class is still something that we really need to talk about uh, as an obstacle uh, as, a, as a set of structures that gives rise to particular cultural artifacts that entrenches them, that reflects them, uh, and therefore we thought that this, this pamphlet uh, was absolutely an appropriate thing, um, an appropriate thing for uh, Counterpoint to publish. To some extent, I would say that the British Council views culture as uh, a mass democratic project. Um, for us, culture and cross-cultural understanding creates the baseline but also the channels between and across cultures. Those are the channels through which we work. They're the channels that we think uh, are, are important in order to create the kind of understanding that we want in, in a flourishing democratic society and in, in a flourishing uh, democratic uh, world. Um, but we also feel that to some extent we sometimes uh, have had a tendency to marginalize class, uh, again, you know, as a particular set uh, of cultural markers. That it's not just about um, ethnicity, uh, religion, uh, et etc., et cetera, but actually it is also about looking at class, sometimes um, as a different country, sometimes as a different world that we need to cross into and that we need to uh, build into and build bridges uh, with. A final few points, which is that, you know, why, uh, you know, why now? Um, well, we feel that this is a really good time to talk about uh, class and culture. Um, there's a report by uh, New Deal of the Mind uh, flagged up the fact that given uh, the cuts that are looming, that possibly uh, culture and, uh, and the cultural and creative sectors were in danger of becoming the preserve of only a certain class. Uh, we wanted to uh, again, you know, put this on the map and see how we address those dangers. Um, we're also talking against the background, I think, of a, a, a growing debate on uh, uh, the impact of inequality. Books like *The Spirit Level* that really sort of set uh, set the tone and have set uh, the, t- the, the 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 parameters of the debate. I think for much of the summer and and for this coming for this coming uh, autumn. Um, and actually you know uh, one of the things that we're clear about and i think that john's uh, pamphlet highlights is that a society that doesn't uh, create and maintain access to culture but also a society that doesn't create access to doing culture isn't just a society that is unfair it's also a society uh, that is working suboptimally it's not making the most of the resources that, that it has. And I think right now, where we're at, it's important that we make the most of these resources. And then finally, I think that one of the things that John and I talked about when we first talked about this pamphlet was this great paradox of, uh, of uh, the UK, which is an incredibly creative, dynamic, uh, buzzing, uh, cultural powerhouse that is also uh, riven by class Divides, and you know, exploring what the relationship is between those two is something that um, that I have an interest in, and that, that is very close to my heart. So to talk about it, we have John Holden, John Holden, who's the author of this fantastic pamphlet, um, who's a professor at City University,
2: only visiting
1: visiting professor at City <laughs> University, <laughs> um, who was head of culture uh, at Demos till 2008. And, uh, and who worked with me. And I have to say, it's just been a pleasure uh, on a very personal level to work uh, with John again. So that, that's one thing. We have Natalie Haynes. Natalie Haynes, who, aside from everything else, is also um, very funny. I think <laughs> <that's> <laughs> that's that is objectively <laughs> true. Uh, some of you may know her from Newsnight Review. She has a fantastic book coming out uh, in November called uh, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, coming out, published by Profile. <laughs> profile books, uh, and, um, and I, I, there's, there's too much to say about you, so I'm going to let you do your own talking. Claire Fox Institute of Ideas. Um, I'm also plugging Battle of Ideas by the Institute of Ideas uh, at the end uh, of October. And Shamser Sinha, uh, who is lecturer in sociology but also a playwright and who is the recipient of the Angle Theatre New Writers Award. Have I got that right? You, you did? Uh, yeah, <laughs> he said surprise. So this is the panel, over to them. I'm gonna hand over first to John to tell us a bit more about the pamphlet. Right,
2: thank, thank you very much Catherine, thanks a lot. Thanks to everybody here for turning up on such a a difficult day. Have I got culture on the left and class on the right? Or is it the other end? It's a wonderful space as well. We've done pamphlet launches in the past in uh, the banqueting hall under a Rubens ceiling in Whitehall. And we've done a pamphlet launch in the Raphael room at the VA. But I've never done one at the epicenter of urban contemporary cool before. So this is the best space in town uh, to be, definitely. I'm going to say a little bit about the pamphlet, I'd rather just read it out because I always hate trying to squash what's quite a complicated process of thinking and writing, um, condensing it even further from what's written into into just a few words. But I wanted to begin with this question of why why now, why put culture and class on the table now, and I think there's one fairly obvious answer to that, which is that um, financial inequality has been growing hugely. Uh, in the recent past and uh, has been getting worse since the 1950s and 60s but class clearly isn't just about financial inequality it's also a cultural phenomenon and I point out in the pamphlet some ways in which culture um, maybe is used is probably the wrong word but some examples of how the poor and the disadvantaged are reviled and mocked in contemporary culture uh, both in popular culture on TV and in the and in the theatre as well. So culture can and does legitimise and enhance um, social inequality. So questions about culture are also questions about power and freedom. They're not just about um, aesthetics. Um, So in one sense I'm really glad to just have those words on the cover to get this debate going about culture and class. I must confess I found this quite a difficult subject to write about because we seem to have lost some of the structures and vocabulary that we used to have around these issues. That's partly, I think, because class itself has got a bit woollier. You no longer have upper, middle, and lower uh, class. It's much more nuanced uh, than that. And culture, I think, has become very different from the old high-low opposition that we used to think of uh, uh, distinguishing uh, culture. In fact, my own view is that culture now, I think, is best thought of in kind of three spheres that interact a lot. One is a sphere of publicly funded culture where the state gets involved in um, supporting certain types of culture. So there are gatekeepers and government interest in what that type of culture means. You've got commercial culture, which is equally protected by a set of gatekeepers, but commercial gatekeepers between you and the market if if you're an artist. And then we've now got increasing this sphere of homemade homemade culture where people can produce stuff for themselves and not just produce it now, but also communicate it, collaborate it, and if they want to, monetize it, or if they want to, just have fun um, doing it and pleasure doing it. Um, So that was one reason why I I found this pamphlet hard to write, thinking about what class is now, thinking about what culture is. But there's also another reason why I found it hard to write, and that is that I'm an enthusiast for... Lots of different cu- types of culture, but including uh, high culture, if you like, including opera and whatnot. So if you like that, but you're also an enthusiast for social justice, how do you square, how do you square those those kind of positions in a world where high culture historically has been used as this mark of what Bourdieu called distinction and a means through which one class separates itself off from the rest of, uh, from the rest of society. So I think the reason why it's worth looking at now um, is partly to pick apart some of this confusion. Culture and cl- social class are clearly not as aligned as they were at the individual level and at the level of society as when Bourdieu was writing about uh, distinction. I think that's that's true to stay. But I, in the words of Tony Bennett, who I think has written the best academic study recently on this subject, he he says that it still matters. He says, our multiple correspondent analysis demonstrates and other statistical techniques confirm that cultural preferences track lines of social cleavage. This does not, however, assume a highly uniform and unified shape. The testimony of individual interviewees suggests that nuanced personal differences oscillate around core class Patterns. So, where does this leave us, really? If, um, if you can have an individual, if the Queen likes Dad's army, and you can have somebody uh, un- in who's long-term unemployed and enjoys uh, going to the opera, does that leave us with any kind of definition, or, or how, do you get a, how do you get a handle on it? Well, what I've tried to do is introduce three, I- three ideas, really, into this pamphlet to try and sort out that, that confusion. One is to say that the idea of cultural capital should no longer be about a canon of works. It's not a set list of either cultural forms or historic forms. Cultural capital instead is really a set of capacities. It's your ability to deal with uh, culture of all kinds that you encounter. So that's your history, that's your locality, that's the planet you uh, live on, that's the culture of the past and the culture of the present second big idea, I think, is that it's really important that culture should be a mass democratic project, not something that's decided by one part of society or foisted by that part of society, which is usually socially privileged onto the rest of us on behalf of those all that's wrong and those decisions to be taken by one social group. And the third key idea is that mass creativity, which is now possible in a way that it wasn't even 10 or 20 years ago, mass creativity by all of us Doing stuff can give us a better life and it can change class relations through what we do and through how we interact. And I'm not talking here about economic relations really. Oh, you talk about creative industries, I'm not talking about that. It's part of it. But it's much more about kind of releasing the human spirit. And releasing the human spirit will, I think, start to, uh, um, to, to challenge some of these class barriers. Is that a utopian prospect? I don't know. I think maybe now we have it within our grasp uh, to take culture and put it at the centre of life in a way that it hasn't been. It's always been treated as rather peripheral uh, by, uh, by politics and society. But it seems to me that we now all have within our power uh, to express our creativity, to communicate it with others. And um, just as you, you can think of how other things in the past have moved from the periphery of life to the centre, like um, medicine in the early 19th century or transport in the early 20th century, these things which were unimaginable at the time, the technology and then the social relations that go with it completely transformed the possibilities for all of us. I remember um, Edward VII once said that driving uh, the car would never take off because there weren't enough footmen who were intelligent enough to be trained as chauffeurs. You know, that's how people thought about transport now. The way people think about creativity and culture now is that it's preserved with a small number of people. Maybe that's not really true. Maybe we all have it within us to be the chauffeur, the the cultural chauffeur, the creative uh, uh, chauffeur. So in in the pamphlet, I'm not going to run through them, but there are various ways in which I think that government, which kind of sets the terms and uh, sets up some of the uh, arena in which all these relationships take place, uh, I put some ideas forward for what I think they can do, very much around kind of education and easing, easing life for us, um, and what uh, what particular arts and cultural institutions might 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 do as well. Um, I put forward in here the idea that the right kind of attitude to culture is that of the cosmopolitan but not the kind of old-fashioned cosmopolitan who sits as a a, a very privileged and independently wealthy flaneur, kind of cruising across, picking and dipping into different cultures across the world, rather as somebody who's deeply embedded um, in where they they are. And Anthony Appiah, that great man, says something very interesting about cosmopolitanism. He says, cosmopolitanism shouldn't be seen as some exalted attainment. It begins with the simple idea that in the human community, as in national communities, we need to develop habits of coexistence, conversation in its own older meaning of living together, association, which is what culture at at bottom um, really is. Um, So this demands action in two directions, really. Um, Cultural education to encourage social mobility for the individual, Um, but the idea of making uh, who defines culture in the first place, becoming a question decided by all of us, not just, not just by on, one, one class. Um, so maybe I'll leave it there, because I've probably spoken for a long okay. Okay.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask the rest of the panel to respond now. And Shamser, I wonder if I could pick on you first, yeah. if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, sure.
0: Hmm. I, I was thinking about um, various things. Maybe it's one thing I'm saying. Anyway... Cosmo, um, new cosmopolitanism uh, from the pamphlet and I think that yeah uh, when you live together uh, you, there are you know, new uh, sometimes people describe them as novel encounters where people who, who, wouldn't, who from different groups meet each other maybe they come from different countries they meet each other, swap ideas new things pop up, things get hybridised reworked, reborn again something else happens, fine but that's no doubt true. But at the same time, I was reading the other day um, something by Stuart Hall. And he, wrote, he was writing about multicultural drift in this thing I was reading. And he was talking about how um, he, he, was in, he was quite depressed, I think, you know, disappointed in a way with what's, what had happened since he was writing about new ethnicities in the 80s and stuff and, and then into the 90s. Because he was saying, yeah, okay, we all live together, there are these emergent forms. people swap things, new cultural forms happen, new twists, you know, in music, in, in art, in a whole variety of things. But he was bemoaning the fact of a, of a lack of a, a prominent oppositional politics to hegemony. In um, the particular thing I was reading, he was talking about what he felt was at heart still the throbbing heart of racism in the, in the UK. But I think more broadly, that's true. But hegemony in the UK and forms of class inequality, that despite this new cosmopolitanism, there is this kind of drift. Um, however, um, perhaps the, 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 we should be attentive to the drift and what's happening when, when people are doing the new cosmopolitanism because it's sowing the seeds of a different kind of cultural politics. If you listen to The Streets or, or Kano or Dizzy Rascal. They're not necessarily... Uh, it's not, it's not a, 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 a necessarily an obvious political movement, but it's the seeds of something different there because they're describing how we're living, at least from their points of view. Um, so the seeds are there, and we have to be attentive to that if we want to uh, uh, look at inequality. Um, and perhaps a good... perhaps I mean, you know, I'm not usually optimistic and quite pessimistic anyway about <laughs> politics, really. But um, there was something in the pamphlet about you know, public sector cuts and you know, how that sometimes ends up with a small C uh, culture. I wonder if it ends up with a, a small C of a particular kind of culture, like a small C public culture, and maybe a small C commercial culture, but again, if you look at hip-hop and the development of hip-hop, of course it makes millions now. Um, and, and raves in, 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 uh, in the UK in the 80s, the early 90s and so on there wasn't loads of money floating around for a lot of people then yet people were doing different things and, and uh, uh, inventing new forms and, and practising or claim to practise different ways of living in particular regards so perhaps that possibility is here today, But well, it better be put it that way <laughs> um, and the other, there was another thing I was picking up on, it was um, uh, you mentioned it in slightly different words today. You probably mentioned it at different times in the pamphlet, actually. But but you know about um, how our cultural tastes are becoming individualised. I think that in today um, in your talk, you, the talk that you gave, perhaps it was in relation to like you know how culture and class not so aligned as as before. Um, it's true, I, I think, but also. Um, sometimes when we think of the individualisation of culture or how things are not al- as aligned as before, it, it, sometimes people take the idea and, and the way they run with it is the wrong way because they use it as an excuse, an excuse to not being attentive to the new encounters and new forms of culture that people cluster around and that forming anyway. Um, and it, it's not helped by the cultural avenues we have, I think, often. Uh, I'm thinking of this various avenues, but if I take playwriting, for example, um, sometimes people, instead of picking up on those emergent forms or or new encounters that happen, you can go to the theatre, you can sort of sit in the posh seat, and then you can listen to, um, you can have a little holiday in someone's misery for about an hour, and then you can go away, and then you think you've picked up on some stuff. But you haven't. So there's a question about cultural politics and ethics when we do this kind of work as well, where we place ourselves. Um, oh, we There's a guy, a guy I know. He lives in um, Ilford. He's a young Afghani guy. He's uh, seeking asylum here. And um, his great-granddad was in the British Army. He lives next door to an 80-year-old woman from Scotland who was in the army herself. She's a, uh, a Scottish woman. Uh, Downstairs is a white British guy who owns a pit bull. Opposite him is a Jamaican guy. His neighbour on the other side of the road is an Indian guy. And when he first came, no-one really liked him on that street around him. He had to talk to them, have a dialogue with them, in which we could be attentive to to how how ideas were being mixed and what was coming out of those. In fact, when you listen to him or you have a look at photos he takes, you hear all that. That's the kind of attentiveness I'm talking about, which is different from sort of sitting in a theatre looking at the misery of someone for about an hour, because you're clear on, you know, what your ethics are and where you're placing yourself in relation to the cultural politics you want to do. You're not responsible necessarily for everyone's listening from what you do, but you can at least make an effort not to fall in, not to, to think about not trying to put someone's misery on show for, for, for mere entertainment. Um, so anyway, that, that's the end of my ramblings.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much um, I'm going to teach you Natalie if that's okay I'd Yes, no, you do nice um, Hello uh, So
3: in case you don't know who I am and why on earth should you um, I started out as a stand-up comedian uh, which I did for about 12 years and as that became more successful to me I kind of segued into uh, journalism and broadcasting so I now make quite a lot of arts programmes for the BBC um, and uh, yay go me um, But uh, I think my angle on this is probably slightly different because um, I am creative for a living. I don't have a proper job, and the last time I had one was 1998, uh, and I wasn't very good at it. Um, And uh, so I'm quite vulgar and grimy on the subject of art and money um, because if you want people to be creative, you have to make it possible for them to pay their bills while creating, brutally, Um, I spoke to uh, my former uh, comedy producer, um, who runs the Etcetera Theatre, the smallest theatre in London, and founded the Camden Fringe, uh, which has just had its fifth year, uh, with 700 shows happening in Camden during the month of August, all of which cost £7.50 to go into, and are therefore a bargain. Um, And she said very much the same thing. She is roughly the same age as me. She's in her mid-30s. And there seems to be an expectation in our society that if you go into the arts in any kind of format, you're basically prepared to give up everything else. You're happy never to be able to afford your own home. You're happy never to be able to have children, um, particularly if you're based in the southeast. And that's actually not true for a vast number of people, which is why you get such a huge drop off, uh, where, whereby this, the teaching plague, it used to be called, rather ungenerously in my day, where you went into the arts it, after university, tried it for about 10 years, and I'm like, oh, I'm <laughs> uh, sorry, I thought, oh, i am going to be a teacher instead. Sorry, I did used to be a teacher, although let's remind ourselves I was rubbish. Um, and so I think my worry is that by trying to open up culture for everybody, by trying to say, oh yeah, let's have it all on the internet, hooray, look how accessible and cheap and free it is, we're actually also simultaneously making it impossible for anybody but the wealthy to, to go into art in a long-term kind of context. I think when I was um, in my final year at university, a BBC intern's job paid something like £14,000 a year, so that would have been in 1996. I can't imagine that it's proportionately a great deal higher now. Um, you have to be and that's, that's the best gig you're going to get if you want to start working in television then that's the best the, the radio 4 training gig is you know or the uh, BBC TV training gigs are the best ones you're going to get otherwise you're looking at a perpetual life of very short term contracts two or three months terrible money incredibly long hours and a strange combination of being either you know basically in a 14 hour day or unemployed with no hope in the 14 hour day of finding work for when your period of employment comes to an end So it is a really vicious business and it's very hard to see how to fix that. The TV (coughs) companies, the arts companies, the theatre companies that ask for interns don't do it because they're stingy and they think not paying young people is funny. They do it because they don't have any money. But nonetheless it's created a bias which means that only people with very rich parents, um, ideally who have a house within Zone 2, can ever work in the arts. And the BBC is working hard to fix that by sending things like the review show to Glasgow, which is of course so near where all the theatre openings all the film screenings and all the arts openings oh no wait it's 350 miles away from all of them that's right I knew there was a point of it somewhere Um, (laughs) the BBC nonetheless is trying but it doesn't change the fact that it's extremely difficult to get a toehold in the creative industries if you're not rich to begin with Um, and that's why stand up was my salvation because stand up brutally you can turn up and get paid 20 quid for doing 10 minutes. Even when I started out, you'd get paid 20 quid for doing 10 minutes. And 20 quid isn't a small amount of money if you aren't earning any money doing anything else creative. It's actually all right if you double up those gigs. When they start to pay 60 quid, 100 quid, 200 quid, you don't have to be playing Wembley to make a really quite good living as a comic. Um, but I think it's, a very, it's very interesting that the Arts Council doesn't acknowledge comedy as an art, I imagine, because it is low art, uh, <laughs> which is my favourite kind. Um, But one of the things I try to do as a comedian and as a writer, and because my writing at the moment is based on classics, so Latin, Greek, ancient history, not the most socially uh, accessible branch, although not classics fault, obviously, the fault of successive uh, governments where they were bad at Latin at school and went, oh, it's very elitist, we shouldn't teach it. No, you were bad at it, it isn't elitist, (laughs) you're just stupid, I am sorry. Uh, Latin, actually quite easy, what a pity you were (laughs) thick. so i try to go to schools i get asked to probably one or two a term uh, and some of them are very nice schools which want me to talk and they want me to talk about latin and greek and books and things like that and some of them are not so nice schools in which case they ask me to go and talk about something they actually can imagine their 11 and 12 year olds relating to. Comedy is a really good way, and if you ask, in my experience, a room full of, say, 10-year-olds what their favourite book is, you get silence. Ask them what their favourite TV programme is, and you immediately hear about The Simpsons, Futurama, so on and so on. You can get them to books. They have read books, they're just scared they'll get it wrong. They're not scared they'll get it wrong about telly. So you end up being able to talk to children about high art ideas. I have talked to children about all kinds of complicated things. Uh, rhetoric and stuff like that by going in through comedy. They understand what a one-liner is. They understand how a rule of three works. So it doesn't take very long to get them to understand what a tricolon is. They're the same thing, after all. Um, And so I think as creative people, we kind of have a responsibility to give a, a little bit of our, frankly, very badly paid time to go and talk to children who are, in essence, where I was when I was their sort of age, namely it just didn't occur to me that creativity was an option for people like me. I grew up in Birmingham, and my mum was in the local Am Jam Society, but it never occurred to me that you could make a living out of asking about on stage. That just seems ludicrous. It still seems ludicrous, to be honest. I've done it for ages. <laughs> uh, I can't believe how long I got away with it. But I think it's all right to go into schools, to go in to talk to children and say, this is actually something you can have as an ambition. That's an acceptable thing to want. But then in that case, we also have a collective responsibility as a society to stop nicking things off the internet just because we can and hand over some money. Um, If you want to download telly, which is going to be on the BBC anyway, and you pay your license fee, I don't have a problem with that. But we can't keep taking things. We can't keep pinching things off the net and then going, why is telly rubbish? You know why telly is rubbish, because there's no money in telly. (laughs) You You can't moan about the fact that independent TV companies don't pay their interns anything, not even a travel card, for months on end. If you're not prepared to put your money where your mouth is as a consumer, I don't think. So uh, there you go, that is me.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, you're super welcome. (laughs) Claire, over to you.
4: John, uh, in his introduction, talked about the new cosmopolitans um, as the heroes of the pamphlet, and indeed they are. Um, And he then uh, uh, characterises some people who are opposed to them which is me. Um, so I'm going to read you what he, the other two groups that, that he... <coughs> One, he talks about cultural snobs, a small but still influential group. They're typified by not only their allegiance to certain art forms and periods, but by their insistence that only the already educated should enjoy them. So it's very hard for me to say, oh, I agree with that, because he then goes on to quote Brian Sewell. Um, so you immediately think, that's me finished. But actually... Um, despite that, I know that I actually have some sympathy with uh, people who he characterises as cultural snobs. Um, it, there's a quote from Mark O'Neill, the former head of arts and museums in Glasgow, who I've in fact debated on many a times, we don't agree on much. So uh, Mar- Mark O'Neill says um, that he maintains that critics want to restrict access to the meaning of the works to those who are already knowledgeable. But I think that what is in danger of happening if you over-lampoon the cultural snobs is is that you actually end up demonising the knowledgeable, and you end up suggesting that knowing something or being a connoisseur or being an expert is somehow the same as being Brian Sewell, or that somehow it means that you want the elites to be kind of cast out of polite society. And he even goes on to say that the problem with cultural snobs is that they're against such ideas as access and outreach. But the terms access and outreach are very political terms. And I object to being told I'm not allowed to discuss them or, in fact, look at how damaging they've been to the arts without it meaning that I'm suggesting that we put up the barricades of the museums and don't let the oiks in. Um, Access and uh, uh, and outreach are actually not uh, just as the words describe them. But there's a kind of slightly kinder description of the neo-Mandarins, who are the second group, they are uh, the position of the neo mandarins is different from the cultural snobs because these people are cultivated and are cultural enthusiasts who wish to share their enthusiasms with others, and they believe it is patronising to assume that anyone is incapable of understanding and enjoying culture, and they're keen to educate them in high culture. And to a certain extent, that's sort of my position, uh, for which I make no apology. So I, I've kind of got a series of questions for John. Um, uh, I fear that um, one of the things that that you say that the the, the Mandarin sphere is is losing the possibility of the arbitration, of their arbitration of an understanding of quality. Whereas what I am concerned about is is that we're actually seeing a kind of growth of cultural relativism relativism, uh, and institutionalising of it, uh, a false sense of the word democracy, that means that we've actually lost our nerve even to have the possibility of such an arbitration equality and that we're no longer prepared to make judgments about the shoddy and uh, the better and so on and so forth. And I think that if, as a society, we cannot distinguish between something that is brilliant and something that is third rate, because we're frightened somehow that this is going to offend someone, and then we disguise it as somehow something to do with social justice, we're doing the working class disservice for a start off, um, and it's not doing anyone any good. I fear that the cosmopolitan definition of culture in the pamphlet is so broad that it ends up being meaningless. I am perfectly happy with the notion of culture expanding and including new forms and genres, and obviously the canon can't be stuck in aspic. But I want those forms to be pushing because of their artistic excellence to get in. That's a kind of highly dynamic thing. My fear is that what's happening is is that we're almost like throwing open the definition of culture because we don't actually believe any longer that the uh, working classes or the masses are capable of getting high culture. So we therefore say, well, they can't get that. Then we broaden out culture so that everybody can say that they get culture and is involved in culture. And it strikes me as being an entirely conservative imagination, not uh, very aspirational. I don't see that high art has got anything to do with class. The only way that you can think it has is is that if you look at the audiences of high art... Now, I do understand that if you go to the Royal Opera House and you look at the audience, you'll think, oh, this is a snobbish crowd. But I'm talking about the art. What is snobbish about art? Any art, right? There is no such thing as a class-ridden art. It's art, and it should talk to all of us, wherever we're from, whatever background, and so on. That's my uh, cultural enthusiast bit. I am fearful that... um, there's a disingenuity here, you know. Uh, um, maybe uh, let's put it this way: we can all say that hip hop and opera are just art forms, and how dare anyone suggest that one is better than another? Um, Beethoven beatbox. Claire is obviously going to be a snob if she argues that Beethoven is better. But there's a rel- there's a dangerous uh, problem here. A lot of people don't believe this. There's not been a cultural battle that one is an art form as good as another art form. It's an assertion and we're terrorised to say any different in case we're accused of being a snob. What you then get is you say, your son's into hip-hop, my son's into Beethoven. I'm not going to make a judgement against it, that's just the way it is. Well, guess what? It reinforces class difference. Let's put it this way. The University of Derby, the University of Oxford... What the people whose sons and daughters go to the University of Oxford say is that the University of Derby is just as good as the University of Oxford, that the degree in beatbox is just as good as PPE at Oxford. And they say, we're not snobs. How we are absolutely agreed that these are equal, right? And of course, everybody secretly is going, to learn, it's not true. And the worst thing is, it isn't true, right? Because actually... The challenging content of high art, which I think anybody is capable of acquiring, is something which should be open to everyone, but there is a superficiality about a lot of things that are being described as art and culture in this pamphlet that I do not think make them art. Without meaning that I'm saying that it should only be opera and ballet that anyone goes to, but you can caricature me that way if you want. Um, My final point is you make a lot, John, of the action of creativity and the doing of it. I mean, there's the homegrown culture, but it's this idea of being a producer of culture. Partly the argument is that with creative industries on the expansion that, in fact, we want people to have access to jobs through the creative industries. I mean, I I think that's a kind of instrumentalist view of art that I'm not particularly interested in, but anyway, that's one side. But again, you don't so much talk about the excellence of products made. It's as though you're treating... the the exercise of creativity as though it's a therapeutic good regardless of whether it's of any use or not. Now, I'm a bit of a fan of Britain's Got Talent and the X Factor and even Britain's Got Talent knows that not everyone's got talent and there are times when you do want to press the buzzer and say, get off the stage you can't sing. And it's always one of the most vile aspects of the X Factor that you can't understand how people have been encouraged to go on the television and sing when they can't sing, and you want someone to have said to them before, honestly, don't do it. It's going to be humiliating. So is there a danger that you just end up telling everyone to be creative even when they're not actually being creative, although it might look like a creative act? And in that sense, it's a bit like user-generated content. You know, some flashes of brilliance, most of it's rubbish. And... For the uh, people who said years ago, this is a revolution in accessing people, you know, everyone can have a voice, there are some reasons why some people aren't published because I've got nothing to say now I've got no objection to them being published, but it's vanity publishing and it's not the same as being able to write in a way that is going to transform uh, the way all of the rest of us think so is there a danger that you're just throwing a sop to the masses by letting them Be creative when, in fact, you're actually betraying their access to the arts.
2: Um, Well, there's a lot in there. We could be here for the rest of these. Yeah, but I
1: think think, think that that um, needs... Well, let me respond to to a few of the points there.
2: Uh, One thing is that you're mixing up a lot of art and culture in there, uh, and the pamphlet is about culture, not specifically about art and publicly funded culture. Uh, culture or what we call high art and so on. I think my position is no, I'm not anti-expertise. I'm against the abuse of expertise. I'm against expertise when it is used to um, distinguish one set of people from another uh, on, on social or economic grounds. So I think we should have debates about quality but not debates which are, are, are disguised, if you like. Uh, the John Seabrook. Uh, had a really good phrase for this. He said, sometimes people are pretending to maintain standards, but they're really just preserving their own status. We must be aware of taste as power and pretending to be common sense. And I think there's a lot in that, because you do, you do see people doing that uh, from time to time. Second is, I think the idea of kind of comparing and contrasting hip-hop and Beethoven, is a bit like to me like saying, is a carrot better than a lobster? I'd rather have a discussion about whether a particular performance of Beethoven is excellent or not, and whether a particular hip-hop artist is excellent or not, trying to kind of weigh one against the other doesn't doesn't really work for me. Um, the next thing is, I don't think you can really divorce art from politics and life and put it in a bubble where it's divorced from questions of of of, of class and status and all the rest. I'm really interested by what Natalie said about the importance Very of making a living. That's I know, <laughs> a, you're so correct. You're so, I, I'm right. always right. <laughs> a few years ago, I published a, a pamphlet with the uh, really snappy title of Publicly Funded Culture and the Creative Industries. How
3: many copies did you sell?
2: Oh, it was free, it had to be. Um, <laughs> anyway, this, this pamphlet was all about the linkages between um, the publicly funded world and the commercial world, like, you know, having History Boys starting off in an experimental theatre space moving to the National Theatre, going to the West End, becoming a film and so on, and how artists move freely between these kind of phrases This pamphlet was pu- picked up um, by a, a right-wing think tank called Civitas who called it a vulgar little pamphlet <laughs> and they said it was a vulgar <laughs> little pamphlet because all these people who worked in the creative industries should forget about being in the creative industries and they should go and stand in front of a water a fête champetre or a fête galant uh, and it made me smile because a week before I'd been in Charlottenburg looking at Watteau's last work, which was a shop sign that he'd been commissioned to do for a Parisian grocer. You know, he had to make a living. And it's true, artists have to make a living. Um, so we, we shouldn't kind of try and divorce people's wish to express themselves and to make art and all the rest of it from this need to make a living at the same time. These things can work quite comfortably together, um, in, in my mind. And we shouldn't try and separate art off as this kind of autonomous sphere that's just out there, like Philippe de Montebello at, at, the, at the Met in New York said he wanted his galleries to be a space for pure reverie, as if they were you know, divorced from who sponsored the show and who paid for it and all, all that kind of thing. But finally, let me just, let me just say this. I was saying this for the end, but I'll say it now. Um, after I finished writing this pamphlet, I came across a sentence which I thought summed up my position better than I've done, and I wish I'd read it before, really? uh, before I'd written it. Very annoying. It was Julian Barnes oh, well, uh, writing about He's, he's a always a fantastic. That's what he does. Talking about Ford, Maddox, Ford. And he said Ford, Maddox, Ford's position was this. I think this is right. He says, the arts and culture should be democratic insofar as anyone can make them and anyone can enjoy them. And th- but they're aristocratic in the sense that they're highly skilled, difficult, and rare. And I think it's possible to have both of those things at the same time, and that that is not a contradiction and that that is the kind of world that we should be striving for.
1: Great. Um, I want to go back to uh, a, f- a few points, and particularly the point that Shams made in, uh, to contrast with something you said. You, you quite rightly pointed out the fact that um, these people, people need to be paid. Uh, people need to be paid in order to participate uh, in, in cultural pursuits, in order to be artists, in order to be stand-ups. You were emphasising something different. You are emphasizing this notion of attentiveness Mm -hmm. in a sense. Um about cash and uh and attention. And I'm just I'm I'm sort of wondering how we how we make sure that we get a a, a balance of both. That on on the one hand that you know we engage with the the, the more uh hard-nosed, grubbier necessary aspects of people needing to make a living. And then what you're raising, which is actually you know the, the fact that in many respects uh, what we need in order to really uh, become both sort of culturally knowing as well as uh, having some sort of creative understanding is, is, real sp- is real space. It takes time. We don't really live in a world that allows for that much of that attentiveness that you say is actually so crucial uh, you know, to becoming um, more conversant, in what, in what others have to offer in, 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 cultural, in cultural terms. Can you say more about how we create this attentiveness? I, th- I, th- I, think, I think, well, I mean...
0: I think maybe a lot of people are attentive.
1: I create the space. For maybe, to to
0: us, yeah. yeah, maybe people have uh, conversations with each other. Well, when I was talking about this guy, and I gave one example, they're listening to each other, having these conversations about, you know... Um, how uh, this I won't tell you guys How this guy's uh, great granddad was in the British Army, and then the woman the, the from Scotland st- talks about how, how she was in the army, and then what they think about armies and fighting, and so on. So they're already listening. It doesn't mean to say that, that they're all going to write plays or make music or do anything like that. But if you're going to be an artist. And you That's the, you know, you're, you, and and you. Maybe you're writing a book or a play or a TV present, whatever. Um, if you're listening and picking up on those conversations, maybe that's what you have to do. You know, and and, and uh, I think, mean, I think you were talking about how it's easier to get into particular forms of art if, if you've come, if you've got a bit of money. Maybe your parents live in Zone Two or something like this in, in London, and and maybe. Maybe that's true, maybe that's why there isn't that attentiveness, because the people who would pick up on it, or things like that, maybe they're living in boat. Maybe they don't have the time to go around with a notebook. Maybe, God They've forbid, they don't live in London at, King. at all. Imagine
3: <laughs> that. But that seems to me a genuine problem, and one that no one's really managed to address, not even the BBC has managed to address, the fact that, given how popular it is to work in the arts, you would think it would be a meritocratic system. You would think... That, you know, with a hundred people wanting every single job in telly, in a theatre, that the best person would get the job. And of course, that's not what happens. The best person often simply has to go and earn a living. And the person whose parents live nearby doesn't have to go and earn a living. They can be subsidised by those parents for, you know, a little while. And they end up with the job. And it's a, it is a genuine worry if, we're, if we are going to take seriously the notion of. Um, good culture, whether it's high or low, versus not-so-good culture, it seems to me really unfortunate that a huge percentage of people are simply excised from cultural contribution because they can't afford to work in it. Um,
4: well, I suppose I'm quite torn on this. I mean, I, I'm quite interested in, in, John, when you say your response was that artists have to make a living, and I think that's true, although I, mean, I was actually quite surprised that I think it's at the start of Chapter 4 when you're kind of quite savage on commercial art in a way that I thought was actually verging on snobby as it goes. <laughs> I mean, it was a bit like Mad Men is Waitrose and everything else is processed food. And apart from mm-hmm. the fact that who goes to Waitrose?
3: Oh, I don't, yeah, yeah no,
4: no, fine, but <laughs> food.
3: for me, for me <laughs> the <taste> amount <laughs> of
4: snobbishness to do with processed food and what's <laughs> called junk food eaten by junk people, we all know the secret, apart from, you know, those who go to Waitrose can be something like that. I mean, I'm not as opposed to commercialised art forms, actually, as it goes. I think people do have to make a living. But I suppose I'm slightly nervous about two things. One is, is that one of the ways that I think that we, as a society, should be able to ensure that the arts are something that even we can create in general is that we have economic prosperity. And at the moment, there's quite a lot of antagonism to economic prosperity. I mean, I don't just mean the recession... And in fact, the spirit level and a lot of the politics associated with the spirit level and happiness and so on is implicitly quite um, hostile to economic growth and economic prosperity. For me, economic growth and economic prosperity are absolutely necessary in order to give us the time and the leisure to have time to reflect and contemplate and be artistic. And I don't mean being commercial artists, I mean to appreciate the arts and be artistic on the one hand. But I'm also slightly nervous about the notion that if you're poor, you can't get the arts. I mean, on the one hand, I can understand that, you know, if you're poor, you might not have time. But the history of working class emancipation over many years is that because people were poor, it didn't mean they were stupid, and it certainly didn't mean they didn't have aspirations. And in fact, the British working class often historically taught themselves to read in hedge schools, so they could read great philosophers and great arts. It wasn't that they were kind of doing it so that they could access rubbish. And that's what I mean about a kind of underestimation of the capacity for people. Now, I, I don't think that aspiration exists more broadly, but I don't think that's only amongst the poor. What I'd say is the cultural elite has lost its nerve. It's lo- it I, I don't know who believes in high art anymore. I mean, it just isn't ever argued for. And I think it should be argued for for everyone, that's my point. What's interesting if you go to the developing world is um, and, the, and especially the newly emerging economies is how aspirational and voraciously greedy people are for the best of western culture. Not because they want to imitate us in Britain, God help them but because they know it's something that is beautiful and wonderful and something they want access to um, and, that's sh- and that's got nothing to do with the fact that I mean they're much poorer than we are
1: but don't you think that part of the reason when you say there's nobody arguing for high art is the fact that the categorization between these has, you know, somewhat disappeared and it's good and talentful or not very good and talentless rather than high art and low art.
4: I don't period. think people make those judgments. I, d- I don't even think people make that it's great hip-hop. I think it's disingenuous. I mean, I, I do not think it is right to say that popular culture... It's exactly the same. Ephemeral popular culture, which I enjoy. This is not to say that one shouldn't enjoy it, but if you're seriously going to tell me it's the same as... Uh, and, 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 by the way, because I've mentioned Beethoven, it does not mean that I'm stuck in a particular period. I could talk about contemporary classical music as well. There is such a thing. I'm talking about what happened when they brought out the Blood Music manifesto, which was hilarious. They bring it out. I thought, brilliant. I really believe the government's going to go into schools and open up music to everyone. And they sent teachers on re-education classes in street music because they said that the problem was that teachers weren't familiar enough with the pupils' music. So instead of teaching the pupils to read music or to listen Mm. to music, they told the teachers the problem was them, that they were not being relevant for the kids.
2: Yeah, It's patronising. I completely agree with you um, in underestimating the capacity of people. And I can chart in here, actually, the destruction of some of that capacity. Working-class self-help um, institutions in the 19th century, yeah. um, but I think we have to accept that you know sometimes really tr- great things come out of what, what is not characterized as high art. The, the best thing, the best commentary on the Vietnam era, is Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. It's much better than any novel that tried to chart it. Anything done in the kind of classical music world. It really speaks for that period and it came out of somewhere that it traditionally wouldn't, wouldn't have done. Um, next thing, um, are time and leisure necessary for art and culture? Well, I kind of don't think so. I think if you look back in time and in other places of the world, you can find places where, where art and culture and the making of music and the making of paintings is so integrated into everyday life that these are not rich societies. This is just how people express themselves. This is, what, this is what they do. And I think it's a fault of our society that we try to divide uh, art into something that is just about leisure or needs leisure or needs, needs time. It should be part of, part of life, really. Um, and finally, I think, on this question of r- relativism, I, I, I find this quite a difficult one. But certainly historically, if you look back, you can see how judgments. About uh, the quality of art changed radically over time. Obviously, I've, I've just been reading um, quite a lot about garden history, and you look at the notion of the Gothic um, excoriated by Anthony Ashley Cooper, Lord Shaftesbury in the 1720s, 1740s, or whatever it was. You just compare it to absolute rubbish, barbaric. Fast forward 100 years, it's the best thing out. Look at Lancia, the highest paid artist at the end of the 19th century. Now, you know, Copies prints for Tom's Satan in a junk shop. So clearly, <coughs> judgments about taste do do, do uh, vary over time. And yet, and yet, I, I think at the Nod, there is something about the great that's produced, and the the confluence and congruence of opinion about things over time that really does matter, and that people should have a right to.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask each of you to in. One minute, essentially, uh, wrap up. I'll start this way, but I'm going to save you to have the last
0: word. Okay. Um, I was thinking about um, how the political is subjective anyway. And when we try to win power, we, we, that's when we try to make our politics normative. So then I think we should talk about these different art forms, because that's where the debate lies. That's, we can uncover much about equality and much about inequality by talking about why one thing is better than another thing why what is actually subjective we're trying to win an argument and win their opinion around what we're saying so that's when the, the you know the subjective and 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 what is the i don't know the ontological truth all this stuff starts to to meld and break down that's what we need to do that's quite you know important politically
4: One confusion of the discussion is probably that class has lost its political meaning in recent years and that actually class has become a sociological category rather than a political one. The force of class was, and when you said it was a working class party, people quaked as it happens. Uh, Class hatred had real power and purchase behind it. Now it's kind of like we're talking about a kind of category of identity and there's something rather Uh, difficult about that. I want the arts canon... Moving on, I want the arts canon to open up, but for artistic reasons, not as a Trojan horse for social equality. I think the danger here is that the arts are being used to do something it's inappropriate to do. And I do not think there is anything democratic about the arts, per se. Um, You know, genius is not fairly given out, all right? I could practice the violin for a very long time and not a lot would happen. Um, However, I I might be kind of, you know, it might be a pleasurable, personally pleasurable thing to do, but I'm never going to be a great composer. And and, and I I think we can live with that. I think we want to aspire to the greats, but we can't all be the greats. And so I think we get confused when we muddle the two things up. What I think we are in danger of doing when we talk about democratic art is art by plebiscite, it's the destruction of art, and what's more is it's insulting to the demos. Uh, Ordinary people do not need art opening up in that democratic way. In that way, they simply need to be given access to great art, great, great art. That is the entitlement of everyone. Let's just do that for them without patronizing them on the way. Okay.
2: No, wait, oh, you're not no, last. I'm not patience, last, patience, <laughs> patience. <laughs> um,
3: I would like to come back to your very last point for my very last point, which is to sort of say, um, I'm really glad that it, it struck you, the idea of going and talking about comedy with children. Um, I hope that it isn't patronizing uh, talking to them about, for example, Michael McIntyre, a man whose work I simply couldn't rate lower uh, were I to try. Um, so long as, at the end of it, they also know something more about Aristophanes. I vote that as a win. I should point out, they won't know anything about Plautus from me. I can't bear Plautus. <laughs> absolute rubbish. Aristophanes, juvenile, the first great standard comedian 2,000 years ago. Hello, Michael. Cool. Um, yeah, all kind, kinds of other bad things. Racist, sexist, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, I mean, just everything bad. Funny, though, and that's important. And if nothing else, I like to think that by talking to children about culture that they have and taking it to culture that they don't have, but I'm convinced would like, that you end up doing exactly what we were talking about, leading them out, educating in the purest, Latinistic sense of the word. Thank
2: you. Hey. you um, well, I'm going to leave aside Flair's leaps of logic and reductio ad absurdum yeah, do, and them. agree oh. with her on, on the advocacy of, um, of the high arts, but... I don't think that's the end of the process. I don't think um, that you simply say these are the high arts and that's, uh, and that's it, it's up to you then to enjoy them. That to me is like putting a plate of mussels in front of a beggar without a, uh, a knife and fork. Um, Gareth, this guy on the TV, is, is not patronizing at all. I, don't think, I think he's an educator and he starts with the people but he doesn't compromise on the art and that's the important way to, to go about it. Because if you simply assert that high art is high art and it's wonderful and um, I think you end up with what Grace and Perry said um, uh, about the tears shed at football are the tears shed at football worse tears than the tears shed at opera and you can very easily end up in that, in that kind of position let me just read the last paragraph of the uh, pamphlet to sum up in a modern democratic society the ability to understand and engage with the rich variety of cultures that everyone encounters is a precondition to being able to play a full part in contemporary life A lack of cultural confidence places limits on social mobility. But more importantly, the capacity to express oneself culturally is a mark of freedom and an exercise of power. If culture is to help break down class divisions and inequalities rather than reinforce them, then culture itself must be created by everyone and for everyone. Thank you.
1: Thank you. (laughs)